Hi everyone, welcome to this uh, video log. I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Tony Wood. Tony, hi, happy new year to you. Hello Natalie, happy new year to you and everyone and who's watching this. Happy birthday as well for today. Please, we're not <laughs> talking about that. <laughs> Fair enough. So the best thing about wishing you happy new year is that it's no longer 2020. So uh, Tony, you and I have put together our thoughts, um, which collates those thoughts of our colleagues all across the country as to what our clients can expect for this year. I just wanted to pick your brain on some of those things. Um, can you give us an overview of the top four issues and then let's chat about each of those in a bit more detail? Sure, and we put these four uh, concepts together after really surveying all of the partners and senior lawyers in our team. So we've got, you know, best part of 60 or, or so people from right throughout Australia. And it was really interesting. I, I tried to actually, when we first drafted this article, uh, Nat, and, and for this talk, to say what are going to be the top six or seven issues. But frankly, when we really distilled the information, there were really four things, that's three, that's four things um, that stood out more than anything else. So maybe we might just run through them because I think there's some really key uh, valuable learnings um, and preparations that, yep. that our clients can be doing. Uh, you know, firstly, and, and clearly number one in our list um, was the issue of underpayments and wage theft, which dominated, I think, say for COVID last year in 2020. Yeah. Second is COVID and the aftermath or the, 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 the post-COVID world um, that we're going to be in. There's a whole range of issues that employees are going to have to confront. Um, thirdly is all the IR reforms that are going to be introduced into federal parliament after the committee reports in March of, of 2021. Um, and fourthly, I think we're going to see a lot of advances and publicity, media and still litigation associated with sexual harassment, bullying complaints and, and issues that I'm going to put broadly without wanting to do it unjust, injustice uh, under the heading of workplace culture issues. So maybe we can come back to all of those and, and kick off with with um, with the first one. That so, so, Tony, on underpayments, you and I did something similar at the start of last year and, and that was number one on our list then. So it's not an issue that's gone away. A lot of businesses have probably, you know, had a bit of a look under the bonnet to look at their payroll compliance systems. Why do you think this is still an issue in 2021? Well, we, we know because we're a little bit ahead of the curve. If you follow the media, you can see, well, it's obviously been a big issue for employers last year, but you and I know and all of our lawyers throughout our offices in Australia know that there are so many other clients who are still looking under the proverbial bonnet and uncovering more and more uncomfortable data about their payroll compliance. Um, and a lot of that's been reactive. They've seen the media and said, look, I wonder if we've got a problem. Um, everyone, you know, early-ish last year got a, large companies at least, um, got letters from Sandra Parker, the Fair Work Ombudsman, saying, look, you, the chairman of this business, are liable. What are you doing about it? And yeah. I think that sent the message, you know, coming down to sending to the senior executive ranks. And yeah. many of those clients, big big companies, have not yet hit the the media, um, the public domain, but we all know that there are some pretty significant um, potential underpayments that are still being investigated by, by a variety of employers, both large and small. And and kind of I'm separating a little bit, you know, the, the George Columbaris, kind of the smaller employers that get all the publicity yeah. um, and, and from, from 
what I would regard as as well-intentioned employers who have, who generally have got very good corporate behaviours, but probably by and large have underinvested in their payroll systems. Right? It's a really good point, Tony. And sometimes for some businesses, just embarking upon this journey can be really a really difficult challenge to face into because it is one of these issues. You start pulling the string and then all of a sudden, you know, you uncover more and more things. And um, for businesses that haven't had that strict sort of payroll focus or lens, um, sometimes these things, you know, inadvertently have have continued on. So I reckon there's a few kind of key buckets. Um, Award compliance and misclassification in particular continues to be an issue. So Mm -hmm. award mapping exercises is probably up there on the to-do list. And then, as you say, simple um, sort of payroll inadvertence, I suppose, where the systems don't match the rules in the relevant instruments have led to these issues which, of course, continue to compound. Just before we move on. So just, just to add, add to that point as well, it, it, the reason why we see so many overpayments, mm. inadvertent overpayments, is the same reason we see the same inadvertent underpayments. It's a, all of the same issues. There's not, at least in our experience, I know, there's no concerted campaign for employers to underpay employees, but there is, to, to call a spade a spade, a general underinvestment, and and failure to recognise the significance of it. And because of the escalation of the issue in the public domain and Sandra Parker and the, the you know, the, the kind of the renewed vigour that these yeah. regulators are taking, the whole thing is therefore taking on a whole life of its own, right? Well, look, I, I think that's right. And again, we've got a very unapologetic, an unapologetic regulator in this space who, um, you know, is unashamedly prosecuting and pursuing employers, extracting underpayments. But one thing that has changed since we spoke about this, I do think we're going to start, continue to see the rise in class action related proceedings for underpayments. And for businesses that looking at mergers and acquisitions activity in 2021, um, this is red hot on the list of issues, particularly for all sorts of things, including W&I insurance. Yeah, and maybe just finally before we move on to the next topic, that we, we, we euphemistically, some people very seriously use the term wage theft, yeah. and we are seeing the introduction in Victoria at least and potentially into some of the other states, mainly the Labor states, of wage theft legislation, which is going to criminalise conducts which is uh, does require an element of um, of of deliberate or flagrant uh, conduct uh, but nevertheless that's going to be implemented in the middle of uh, 2021 in victoria and probably some of the other states as well yeah absolutely thanks tony so look um we can't talk about what's happening this year without talking about the continued impact on the pandemic on um, all sorts of areas of life the economy and businesses in terms of how organizations manage that with their workforces and like what are some of the issues that we're starting to see we're now moving into a situation where the government um, uh, obviously is investing in a vaccine for um, for Australians that's coming in the next month or so. What are some of the issues, Tony, that you think our clients can expect to uh, grapple with and therefore should start thinking about now? Hundreds of issues. And, you know, we've still got the residual uh, lagging impact of stand downs and some employees are going to continue to be impacted. I think we're going to see a much more dramatic realignment or restructuring of businesses uh, now that the economy is is probably, hopefully, in a sense, going to settle down a little bit with the rollout of the vaccine commencing in February. Um, so, but th- so there's going to be a number of employees looking at opportunities and saying, look, we've gone through this crisis. 
we've realized we can adapt and change the way that we can we can work you know many businesses actually have been able to you know and it's not the change they would have chosen but but by circumstances have actually made a number of changes and 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 implemented those already. I mean, in the in the big uh, uh, mainstream area, you know, business like Qantas, it's huge reduction in their workforce, and and that's been you know awful for their business, and obviously a, a negative impact on on many of their employees. Uh, but we, in a smaller sense, many other clients and businesses are going to have the same impact. So it, it's kind of the opportunity that presents itself to restructure the business. And there's going to be real pressure on the industrial relations system because of the, you know, the, the mainstream um, presumption of flexible work. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you and I, Nat, are working, we work for nine months uh, without going to the office and all of our lawyers, and we know that our lawyers were as efficient and hardworking as they ever were um, because our, our financial metrics and, and our time recording metrics actually help us um, understand that. And I think many other clients have realised that. But then we're reading about many employees who don't want to come back to work. Yeah. Uh, but the employer does want them to come back work to work. And many employees are going to want to have the employees vaccinated and some employees are going to resist vaccination. And so we're going to have some legal tussles over, over those kind of vaccination issues associated with, with COVID. What, what, what do you think is going to be the main issue? Uh, just touching on that flexibility point, in organisations where there has been um, quite a, a degree of segregation, I suppose, of work areas, what we're seeing in the pandemic is this need to be flexible and far more nimble. So you take a retailer, for example, who, um, you know, employed people to do checkout at a good old-fashioned bricks-and-mortar store. Overnight, they had to quickly convert into a click-and-collect-out for um um, or a fulfilment centre. And so, you know, the changing of that and flexibilities in that. And a lot of organisations, when looking to implement these changes, whether that be shift structures, where and where, how people work, the location that they work, picked up their enterprise agreement, which they happily negotiated, you know, a couple of decades ago and rolled it over every three years, are going, oh, hang on, hang on, I can't do that because of this. So I think we're going to see um, in bargaining some of these issues come out, Tony, and it'll be a really interesting to see how the unions and employees and workers respond to those challenges and how willingness and aware they are of these sorts of issues. I totally agree with that. and But for many employers who don't have bargaining or think bargaining is a waste of time, they are still constrained by awards. Now, bargaining in one sense, I never thought I'd say this, can be quite nimble and responsive. Um, it can be. Um, awards are not. Awards are blunt instruments. They can't be changed easily, but they're highly prescriptive. So yeah. who would have ever thought um, that our, um, our office assistants would have been able to work flexibly and, and so successfully in our business over the last nine months or so, yet they were. On the other hand, they want to work and they want to use that flexibility to take time off with their families, um, go to the gym in the afternoon when it suits them, and, hey, that suits us as well. The trouble is the constraints of the award are such that if you work after 7 p.m., then you're on overtime hours. Um, and therefore, there's, it introduces a variety of record-keeping obligations. So the challenge for our system is to respond to the changes that the economy is going to implement and the needs. And I think there will be a lag impact as far as that's concerned.
Well, hey, look, that's a really good segue to our third topic, Tony, and that's the topic of IR reform. So uh, the Morrison government, as we know, you know, effectively has a, a pretty strong mandate to implement some changes. We've seen what's in the omnibus bill. Um, there's there's a number of proposed changes in respect of um, bargaining greenfields agreements that will be welcomed by employers. Um, some members of the business community said, look, that doesn't quite go far enough. Um, can you give us some thoughts on those issues um, uh, moving forward? Well, I mean, a number of us um, have been saying that enterprise bargaining is dead or dying and is withering on the vine. And I don't know whether these changes are going to give it sufficient impetus to make it really uh, successful. But everyone's been critical of the boot test. Um, and, and again, talking about something which is applied in, in, in a very heavy handed and, and blunt manner. There are two changes to that, which I think is going to make bargaining a, a somewhat um, more feasible prospect for the that employees are on the edge. First of all, currently the way the test applies to, to get an agreement approved, it's got to be better off overall for every employee under the under the agreement compared to the award. And one of the changes is to say that instead of making the commission look at these theoretical rostering arrangements that if it were to apply, could take someone, make someone worse off, is for the commission to be expressly required to look at what is reasonable and likely within the construct of, of the particular workplace. So I think that's going to make the application of the test easier. And I think secondly, um, is is the the new emphasis on the, on the commission in approving the agreement to take into account the views of the parties? I think that's really yeah, really well. beneficial because yeah. at the moment. You know, the better off overall test is a f almost effectively a line by line yes. test compared to the award. It'll be better off than the award on that allowance, on that pay rate, on that overtime condition. Instead of looking at the other flexibilities or or benefits that might accrue to employees, those are virtually not taken into account at all yes. in in a practical way. And the, the, the Act is going to be amended, we, one would think, yes. at least it's proposed to, subject to the committee views, um, to, to allow that greater degree of flexibility. Yes. So I think they're two important changes. Did you see any other changes that are going to be? I, I suppose the casual changes are pretty important too. Yeah, that's right. And look, that that's one that, of course, is, you know, being contested by, um, you know, the unions, union movement. So we might expect to see some changes in that regard. But, you know, in what can only be a welcome relief, presumably to both sides, some clarity as to who a casual employee uh, actually is, because we've ended up in a world at the moment where everyone's kind of scratching their heads and saying, well, hang on, I've employed you as a casual, you've agreed to work as a casual, I'm paying you as a casual, all of a sudden, you're not a casual anymore. So um, getting that clarity, um, you know, if we, if we can get there, would be a welcome change. But there's quid pro quo with that as well, and and that is the the kind of this universal introduction of the right to conversion to permanent employment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, To permanent employment. But the benefit that goes with that is that it removes the, the risk of what's been described as double dipping. Now, yeah. you can't have your cake and eat it too. You're either a casual getting a 25% loading or you're not therefore recurring the NES kind of benefits for annual leave and all the other things for which the loading is, is meant to be a substitute. So yeah. I, I, there's a lot of sense behind that reform, but there's a lot of contention still in the union movement about it and, not, you know, clearly 
although the government intended to, to kind of get the unions and employers together to collaborate on on, on agreed changes, that hasn't been successful. We're, we're too polarised. Yeah. Um, so it's um, going to have to be so many working groups, right. Yeah. So, look, Tony, I just want to wrap up. Um, there's been a fair, fair degree of um, discussion, I suppose, and, again, this is a topic that we've spoken about now for about 18 months, you know, in the wake of the Me Too uh, movement. Um, we've got the, uh, the Federal Sex uh, Discrimination Commission's report has finally been released into sexual harassment in Australian workplaces. We're starting to see some of these issues which, um, you know, are the subject of social movements be interesting footnote to see if there's a similar sort of push on the black on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement, which translates to Australian workplaces. But um, your thoughts on the report and and what our client businesses can do to prepare themselves for this year? Yeah, well, Kate Jenkins' report got buried a bit in COVID. It was released in March, and uh, you know, it's an incredible amount of work. and And the report is really easy to read and and get, get, illustrates a number of examples of the odious impact that, that sexual harassment has um, in, in the workplace. Um, so the report's great. It, it recommends a variety of legislative changes and uh, because of COVID, amongst other reasons, they'll be presumably uh, addressed uh, during the course of, um, of, of this year, 2021. But I think, and, and two, two things I want to comment on that. One really strong theme that comes out from Kate's report is, is that employers want to look at best practice and, and uh, the description of best practice being this taking an employee-centric approach yes. rather than this adversarial yes. approach. You've got a complaint, I'm going to investigate it, but I'm opposed to you because I don't want your complaint to succeed. Yep. Instead, taking the approach where the employer, according to the recommendation, has um, a positive duty to prevent uh, sexual harassment occurring yep. at work at all, very similar to the way the Victorian Equal Opportunity legislation works. And then, as a consequence of that, adopting the view that employees are supported through this process. Now, many employees are doing that. And you know, a great call out to, to BHP, for instance, that is doing some tremendous work in this space. And, and there are a variety of other uh, clients in banking sector as well that are also looking at it. I think that's going to be a, a huge emphasis as we go through the yeah. next year. But even putting the legislative stuff aside now, I think what we've seen over the course of the last year, the Dyson-Hayden High Court fiasco, um, the, the, the huge profile that was um, associated with AMP, uh, you know, there's a litany of, of, of good employers um, that have either had, you know, pretty flagrant examples or difficult examples of uh, isolated examples of, of bad behaviour by senior executives. And one instance can be really crippling to a share price, to a corporate profile, to employee engagement and to culture. And I think that the consequence of all of the confluence of all of these issues is going to mean that employers and boards are going to take a much greater emphasis and interest on workplace culture and hold the executive accountable on, on those issues. Yeah. 
I agree. For me, the one sort of takeout that I thought was uh, resonated with me from the Commission's report was this concept to, to bring about that cultural change in organisations is to think about workplace behaviour and sexual harassment issues in the same way you think about health and safety issues. So it's at the forefront of everything you do. It's a risk prevention um, first approach. Um, and if there is an incident, there is an employee-centric focus on, on things. So for me, that that's a really good way that organisations should start to think about these sorts of issues moving forward. Yeah, and I agree. And look, if you just look at it, I mean, uh, without naming clients, there's one particular client right throughout the course of 2020 that was subject to a constant stream of negative publicity just because of the allegations about one of their senior managers. Yeah. And uh, and in that case, the allegations concerned bullying conduct, mm -hmm. which I kind of put in the same category. And, uh, you know, those things don't go away. And it brings out all of the, all of the stakeholders, the media, the yep. shareholder activists, um, the unions, um, the regulators, uh, you know, whether it's work cover, work safe, comm care, and they all come together and it creates this huge yeah. pressure on businesses yeah and the more employers and boards to be to be honest are aware of these issues and addressing them and holding executives accountable for them the, the much less likely you're going to be in the in the media spotlight um which has got to be a good thing yeah look we could keep going on and on couldn't we tony but um those are our top four issues for organizations to think about sounds like everyone needs to buckle in let's hope it's a bit less volatile than 2020. tony thanks for sharing your thoughts um look forward to reading the article uh, that will be available on our webpage for our clients thanks nat and happy new year everyone and i can't wait to get back to the office <laughs> thanks everyone see you later You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.